I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Welcome back. I hope you all had a lovely plant-filled Christmas and festive New Year. I tell you what, my festive season was full of homegrown delights. First off, we had some allotment kale and some allotment potatoes for Christmas dinner, but then we also had some homegrown Christmas decorations as well in the form of mistletoe. And it was warm and lovely, but most of the time was spent indoors with family and friends. And now that we're in the first few days of January, I'm itching to get back onto my plot, as I'm sure many of you are. It's a quiet and a cold time in the garden, but there's still plenty to do and plenty to start planning for the year ahead. So to start off the new year right, I wanted to begin with a practical and sustainable guide on what you can get up to in the garden this year. I'm thinking of this episode as a kind of sustainability health check for the gardener. We'll be hearing from a range of RHS experts for some top garden sustainability tips, and also we'll be exploring the future of grow your own in our ever-changing climate. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. For many years, a sticking point in the world of gardening has been its reliance on the use of peat as a favoured but horribly unsustainable growing medium. Guy Barter caught up with Nikki Barker, the RHS peat-free transition technician, quite a mouthful but a very important job, for a status update on growing without it. Hello, Nikki. Thanks for joining me. It's nice to speak again after our last talk last spring, I think it was. It was a long time ago. And since then, I think you've become what is now known as the RHS peat-free transition technician. Briefly, what does that mean? Well, apart from being a very long mouthful of a job title, it basically means that I am getting in touch with all of our exhibitors at shows, people that are involved in the RHS supply chain, but also people throughout the industry who are looking at how they're going to make the transition to peat-free. So seeing what their current peat-free status is, seeing where they need help, identifying what they need help with and how they can make the change as seamlessly as possible. Well, to give a bit of context, can you just remind people why peat compost is destructive? Peat bogs and, and peatlands are really, really important as a carbon sink. They're more important as a carbon sink than, than forests, actually. Forests are very important, but peatlands hold a huge amount of carbon stored for hundreds and hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years. 
So as soon as we start to extract peat, that carbon is then released into the atmosphere. And on top of that, if peatlands are left undisturbed, they take carbon out of the atmosphere as well. So they're storing it and they're sequestering it at the same time, as well as being fantastic habitats for some really rare species of plant and animal life as well. Many gardeners will have grown up using peat, but people as old as me can remember life before peat. What did we use before peat? So before peat, we used loam-based compost, so typically John Innes-type composts. Mm. It was a big change to move from that loam-based type compost to peat, which happened probably in the 50s and 60s, really moved that along. So we have been using peat for quite a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, it's still quite a new product. So this change is just as big in that there's challenges in growing, but we've made these changes before and we can certainly do it again. Yes, I remember that um, we thought peat was the most wonderful stuff in the 1970s. So um, why did we give up John Innes compost with its mainly soil base, although it did contain some peat? The main reason that we gave up John Innes compost was because it's heavy. It makes plants difficult to transport and peat kind of revolutionised the way we buy plants. It enabled us to grow and buy container grown plants all year round. So that resulted in a big boom in the retail sector. Because if you think if something's much lighter, you can transport more plants in one go. Hmm. Well, it doesn't sound like we can go back to using John Innes compost. So what are our options at the moment? There's huge numbers of options out there. And I think we must also remember that we used peat because... There's plenty of it in Europe, or we perceived that there was plenty of it. There's lots of countries out there that don't have peat and they still grow plants. And we use composted bark, coir, there's compost based on wool, there's compost based on bracken, and there's some that are also based on green waste and some that are based on a mix of all of those things. So there's lots of alternatives. It's about finding the one that works for you. So there's lots of options and um, perhaps there's no more options to use peat because I understand the government was contemplating a ban on peat. What's the situation at the moment? At the moment, the government is looking at finding a legislative vehicle to bring in that ban on retail bagged compost by the end of 2024, which was their initial policy, and that there would be a ban on professional peat-based compost by the end of 2026 with a few exemptions. We don't know when that legislation might go through, but it is still their policy. And what about the RHS? Are we going to sit on our hands until the government um, enacts some legislation or do we have other plans? No, the RHS is still committed to being 100% peat-free by the end of 2025. In 2026, our plants and our show gardens and all of the plants that are sold at shows will be 100% peat free. Though there is legacy peat in the system, which I think it would be good to explain about, Guy, if that's all right with you. Oh, yes, I'm not sure what you mean by legacy peat, so an explanation will be warmly received. <laughs> right, so obviously there is 
going to be plants of all different shapes, sizes and categories that are already in a certain amount of peat. So what we're saying is we don't want you to knock all of the peat off those plants and and get rid of it. That's stupid. The peat is already in the system. So what we're saying is that any potting action that you do must be peat free. We know you talk the talk, but do you walk the walk and use peat-free compost in your own garden? You I being a skilled and experienced do. horticulturalist, as we know. I most certainly do, and I have done for some years. So I can hand on heart say that I am 100% peat-free. So, Nikki, what peat-free compost do you use? I use Melcourt Silvergrow. I use their seed and cutting compost, or their seed compost, very successfully. The bags of seed compost are quite small, so you don't get a lot of waste. And it's very important with peat-free composts to use the right compost for what you are doing. I personally think a multi-purpose compost is not something you should be using if you're sowing seeds. You'll get poor results. Do you have any tips that people could follow to get the best results from peat-free compost? Yeah, I think the main problems that people have is with seed raising. Generally, if you're just planting in containers, then people don't seem to really have many problems with that. It's the seed sowing. So make sure you don't overwater it. It very often tends to look dry on top, but it will have plenty of moisture further down. So stick your finger in before you water it and see what that moisture level is like further down. I always use cell trays to sow seeds because you're using less resources anyway, which is really important regardless the fact that it's peat free. Just use less resources. If you've got less compost in the cell, rather than using a big pot to put your few seeds in, you're not going to overwater so easily and it's easier to keep the compost warm, which will help the seeds germinate. I think we need to recognise that watering is a skill. And we've maybe, because peat was a very forgiving medium, have lost the skills that we have to water correctly. So because peat-free composts can hold quite a lot of moisture, that's where you tend to get overwatering. Personally, I do think you need to start feeding a bit earlier than you would have done in a peat-based compost. But I don't find with home growing that I'm using huge amounts more fertilizer over time it's just more spread out i start feeding probably when the first true leaves come through on seedlings at a half dilute rate so it is a it's a learning curve but it once you've got done it a couple of times and got your head around it it's just what you would normally do as the right thing to grow your plants you look and think oh that needs a bit of water that needs a bit of feed do it but don't overdo it one of the things I say to people is that once you've found a peat-free compost that works, stick with it, because unlike peat-based compost, they do differ between brands. Absolutely. The ratios differ between brands. Think about your growing conditions. If you've got a heated greenhouse, have you got a heated propagator? Things like that actually might steer you in a slightly different direction if you you're growing in a cold greenhouse then maybe start off in a bit of coir because it drains really well and it, it 
can be a bit warmer to start with and then pot on. So there's lots of things to think about, but actually it's really interesting. Yes, I think it's interesting. I mean, people have their little dodges. Sometimes they sieve compost and sometimes they add perlite or vermiculite. What do you think about doing that? I'm a big fan of vermiculite, I have to say. Perlite, not so much. I don't use perlite. I haven't used perlite really for years. But yes, vermiculite, certainly for seedlings. It's like a little warm, damp, hot water bottle for them, isn't it? And I think I've got a, a five litre bag of vermiculite that's probably lasted me two years. So it's a really useful product. So if someone is still daunted by peat-free growing and it's often long-term gardeners, what advice would you give them? I think that that's a really interesting point. The people that are finding it daunting are people that have been gardening for many, many years. Whereas lots of people that are new to gardening, they have no preconceived ideas about it, so they don't have any problems. So I think it is just a case of using all the skills that you've got, that you've developed over those years, and not expecting it to be the same expecting it to be something that you start learning from again. We've got a, a new growing year coming up, only a few weeks away now. Do you have any particular hopes for the state of peat-free growing next year? I'm really positive about it. I think there's been a real sea change in the last few months. The whole industry is geared up for this legislation and is gearing up for the legislation. So kind of regardless of whether the legislation happens, the industry is already going that way anyway. And I think also the questions that we've been getting from the public this year are very different to the ones we got in 2022 about peat-free mm. compost. There's certainly more around what do I need to change? I know that this has got too wet, so what do you recommend rather than I can't do it? It's more, can you tell me how to do it? You know, I think we've seen the stages of grief, haven't we? We've seen denial, we've seen anger, now we're seeing acceptance. <laughs> yes, um, I think that uh, sums it up very well. <laughs> and yeah, now they're and, asking uh, for counselling on how to, how to manage it going <laughs> forward. Well, I guess that's going to keep your diary pretty busy for 2024. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Nikki. That's been really interesting and really helpful, I'm sure, to listeners. And we look forward to seeing more of your activities next year as you help the industry transition to a new and more sustainable way of growing plants. My pleasure, Guy. If you'd like more peat-free tips, the cover story for The Garden magazine this month, written by Sally Nex, is all about the state of play on peat. You can read the article on The Garden app. And we've included links in our show notes for more peat-free advice, as well as a list of peat-free nurseries here in the UK, which I think is a really important resource, actually, because it's great to support the nurseries and the growers that are spearheading the change. And the other thing I want to pick up on as well is something that Nikki said about using liquid feeds as well. Get a good quality liquid feed and use it diluted on seedlings and then use it also regularly throughout the growing cycle of your plants because that can be one of the issues with peat-free compost is those levels of nutrition and you can tell your plants need feeding if the leaves become a little bit yellowish and growth becomes a bit stunted those are signs to look out for so you know stock up on some good quality liquid organic feed ahead of the growing season and you'll be ready to nip any problems in the bud 
Obviously, going peat-free should be at the top of everyone's sustainability to-do list as we inch closer and closer to the ban. But beyond using different potting compost, there's tons of different things you can do to incorporate sustainability into your gardening practices in 2024. Here's a few suggestions. Hello, my name's James Lawrence, Principal Horticultural Advisor based at RHS Wisley. My sustainable gardening tip for 2024 is to consider how you use ground cover plants in your garden. So reducing the amount of bare patches in your soil and your borders can help in lots of ways. It can reduce unwanted seedlings, it can help conserve soil moisture, and it can help prevent soil erosion. There's so many types of plant you can use for ground cover depending on your situation, but there's lots of things like low growing geraniums or ground cover campanulas that can get you started. And a juga is a good one as well. Hi, I'm Jack Aldridge and I'm a horticulturist at RHS Garden Wisley. My sustainability top tip would be to leave your leaves. For years in areas of garden with high tree cover, the leaves would have been raked off the beds, taken away, composted down and brought back as compost or leaf mould to mulch on the beds. And while this is great, and I'd encourage anyone to make their own leaf mould and make their own compost from leaves they can't use, but leaves in their raw state make the perfect mulch around large shrubs and other trees, perhaps new plantings. So by moving them around and almost keeping them where they are, raking them underneath shrubs, perhaps if you've got a, a, a lawn, blowing them off the lawn and onto the bed and, and using them as a mulch and taking them somewhere to, to, to break down naturally, um, creates this wonderful sort of woodland soil conditions really and lots of beneficial microorganisms and fungi get to work in breaking down the leaves in situ and I think that is much better for soil health than raking the leaves away and bringing it back as a, as a sort of another material. Hiya, I'm Becky Meany, a horticulture advisor here at the RHS. My sustainability tip for the new year is think about what you need to buy. Because after sorting out my shed in the new year, all those bargains that you get and you think, oh yeah, I'll use this, I'll use that, you don't. So it's kind of thinking about what you're getting. And the old advice, buy cheap, buy twice, is definitely true. So look at the investment, maybe buy something a bit more robust and sustainable and then that'll last you longer than something that's cheaper and cheerful. That's sustainability in itself and also saving you money. My name's Adrian Thorne. I'm a horticulture advisor based at RHS Wisley. My tip for a greener 2024 is to make your own compost rather than buying it. In the advice department, we're always recommending compost for mulching plants. It helps keep the moisture in the soil and it helps to keep the weeds down. It it ticks a lot of boxes for gardeners. Making your own is much better for the environment because you're not transporting it around the country and it's making use of your own garden waste. And there's certainly no peat involved. It also saves a lot of money, so it's great all round. Hello, I'm Michaela Freed. I'm a gardening advisor here at RHS Wisley. My top sustainable tip would be to fit a water bat as the summers have got drier and the winters are wetter, you can collect your water over the winter 
and then you've got water to water your plants through the hot summer months. If you've already got a water bat, then fit another one. You can link them together. You can attach them to downpipes with a downpipe converter, and then you will reduce your use on your tap water. If I could add one tip to that, I would say buy less and talk more. I know that's a bit rich coming from a podcast host, but I think growing with others and sharing your knowledge and sharing your produce and sharing your tools, your seeds, your time with other people makes a real difference in terms of not having to just go out and buy everything or you know buy stuff again and again because you've made a mistake. Talk to neighbours, talk to other allotmenteers on your plot, find out what works, what doesn't. And I think that will help us kind of come away from this throw money and throw resources at every single problem. I think it's a much greener way of gardening. And of course, another thing we know about sustainability is that growing a wide range of plants is crucial to helping build biodiversity and arming our gardens for the fight against climate change. And this plays into the fruit and veg we grow as well. Plantsman Kevin Hobbs and woodland ecologist Artis Cesar Erlach recently published a book called Edible, 70 Sustainable Plants that are changing how we eat, where they explore edible plants that, in their own words, can withstand the harshest conditions from heat to frost and from flooding to drought. Here to chat about one of their favourite ways to grow them is Arta and Kevin. So I'm Kevin Hobbs, all-round plant nerd and an author of the story of trees and edible that I co-wrote with my friend and colleague Arta. <laughs> yeah, so my name is Arthur Ziesellach. I'm an Austrian author, woodland ecologist, food communication expert, and I co-wrote the book Edible together with my great friend uh, Kevin Hobbs. I, I would say having studied uh, horticulture in the mid-80s, over the years, I've come to realise that much of what we were taught is obviously out of date and in many cases wrong when it comes to you know how to care for the soil and the life beneath our feet, basically, the mycorrhiza and bacteria and soil organisms that uh, trees and plants and a healthy environment rely upon. So you know, we really wanted to get back to basics and look at more sustainable growing, but also coming from a commercial background, of course, it needs to be also commercial and practical. So we're, we're practical guys and we've got lots of ideas and information we're sharing in this book. Our intention was to really raise the profile of edible plants and how they're grown and where they're grown. So we're proposing that we, we understand more about the food we eat, explore more new foods and have an appreciation of, of where those foods have come from. Yeah, so the the problem of our food system nowadays is that it from the outside it seems like it's this hugely diverse thing, but once you look a bit closer, you realize that most of it is based on uh, four plants, those being wheat, soy, maize and rice. And those four plants are facing a multitude of challenges at the moment from extending from climate change to extreme weather events to biodiversity loss and on. And so the food system as a whole is really in, in urgent need of a huge diversification in order to make it as resilient as possible for the future. 
We are in times of change, there is no doubt about it, but it's exactly those times of change where there is the biggest opportunity to introduce you know, new ideas or in this case, new plans. So we have really great hope at the moment and we are quite confident that the food system will change and that maybe some of the plants we feature in the book will be a big part of it. What we can do with our food system, both in, in large or but also in small scale, is essentially introducing a third dimension. Every kind of food we grow nowadays, be it on large fields or even in our own gardens at home, conventional, organic, biodynamic, what have you, is always almost two-dimensional because it's just you know one field, one garden bed and we are not using the third dimension. Whereas in nature, especially in forests, everything is layered. So you have you know, large trees growing above smaller trees, uh, growing above uh, bushes, growing above ground covering plants. And then you also have climbers and everything. So you make very efficient use of the available space. That's how nature works, especially in forests. And we can very much mimic these systems and use it to produce food, medicine, materials. And this kind of idea is called agroforestry. So you kind of reintroduce the forest back onto our fields, but can also be reproduced even on a small balcony uh, with different you know, plants grown in pots and which are layered. This way we can, on the same surface area in theory, we can produce up to 10 times more calories. And the whole system is much more resilient because plants work together in those systems. You build up the soil, it's resilient against extreme weather events like storm or hailstorms or what, whatever. And I'm personally fascinated with this kind of food production. I think that that is the future of terrestrial food production as a whole. And I'm looking forward to it. And as, as a gardener, certainly um, there's a great deal of appeal to the kind of almost jungle look of edible forestry or an edible garden um, but there's there's all sorts of different crops you can put into this system because the advantage of that approach is obviously it's more um, efficient when you come to harvest we'd like to give an example that could be grown in a small space on a in a window box for example or on the front doorstep in in a container but they're equally versatile for gardens whatever size is uh, fuchsia and in, in our book, we've written about fuchsia boliviana, the Bolivian fuchsia, as the kind of lead example of, of a fuchsia that gives you a very tasty edible fruit, which Arthur will talk about in a moment. But from a, a practical point of view, they're very easy to grow. And there's so many hybrids and varieties that you can choose from. And although we focused on the Bolivian fuchsia, the best alternative for a colder climate is fuchsia magellanica. And that's something that's very easy to grow. I would say actually having grown fuchsias over the years and tasted their berries, um, they're all edible, but it does vary in their flavor and taste because of course, flavor of the berry is not a prerequisite of the breeder. The breeder's focused on, on the flowers, but nevertheless, if you've got a fuchsia and it's producing a berry, wait until it gets dark and, and soft to the touch, dark red, almost black sometimes, and then, and then have a go and have a taste. But it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating genus. And that's, that's exactly what we wanted to get across in the book, you know, that plants perhaps we take for granted because fuchsias are, are ubiquitous. We see them all around in hanging baskets, in patio containers, in gardens, that it's easy to take it for granted. And that's why, you know, Arthur will explain, it's actually a, a food resource. It has a really fresh, uh, refreshing flavor, I would say, going into the area of kiwi and grapes somewhat. 
And it is a perfect basis for anything from jams, jellies and juices. And in Chile, it's even used as a basis for a fermented drink. But not only the berries are edible, but also the beautiful flowers themselves can be used in salads or as a perfect garnish, a really decorative garnish for many dishes. There's a lot of challenging news and bad news out there regarding, you know, climate change and our food system as a whole and food security. But during the research for, for our book, I, I really saw that there is actually not just a lot of hope, but there is a lot of exciting things going on all around the world, being in new kinds of production like agroforestry or the choice of plants which are used in those systems, the diversity that it's introduced. So I'm personally very, very excited and hopeful for our future to, to see this change happen. You can find a link to Kevin and Arta's book, Edible, 70 Sustainable Plants That Are Changing How We Eat, in our show notes. I had a look through the book and it's beautiful. It's really colourful and really interesting. One of the plants they feature is called the tiger nut, Cyprus esculentus. And it's something that I've grown before. And now reading about it, I'm really keen to grow it again. It's an absolutely delicious thing. It's related to papyrus. It's in the sedge family. You can buy them in health food shops and you can buy them in gardening catalogues as well. And they're little tubers. They're a bit like the size of a large pea. And they're absolutely delicious. They taste a bit like sort of halfway between a really fresh walnut and coconut, maybe a little bit of sort of maple pecan flavor in there as well. They're quite sweet. Apparently, they're a bit of a superfood as well, really good for you, full of fibers and minerals and things like that. And they make these lovely little grassy plants. I grew mine in a pot in the greenhouse, which was a bit too hot and a bit too dry for them. They do really well in the soil. If you've got heavy clay soil that sits a bit wet, they'll be absolutely fine. And even in these harsh conditions that I gave it, it actually kind of almost burst the pot. There were that many nuts in it. So it's a really nice reminder of something that was quite fun and quite different that I'm really keen to grow again. But before we go, I wanted to share a few tips on what you can get up to in the garden this week, now that we're all settling back to our normal routines. The soil is really, really wet at the moment. So put your spades away and don't go near the lawnmower, even if the grass has grown. It's not worth creating a quagmire. But if you're keen to get out and the weather allows it, start pruning your apple trees, your pears, your wisteria, red currants and gooseberries, a lot of these deciduous things that are pruned in the winter, now will be a good time to get out there and do them now that they're fully, fully dormant. And also, if you just fancy putting your feet up for a post-Christmas rest, it's a really good time to be getting all your gardening catalogues in. Look through the seed catalogues, look through the growers' catalogues for bare root plants, even fruit trees and things like that. It's a good time to just take stock of the garden, look where you've got spaces, think about what you want to grow in the year ahead and get your orders in nice and early because then you have the maximum choice. That's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. 
With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 